Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. What's Wagner's rule of life number four? Nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm sorry, I understand I might be like a dog with a bone on this, but this is just fundamentally wrong. It is an insult, but let's tee this up. The Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. I'm sorry, I think this is absolutely ridiculous. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. So, Eric Bilstead, after I get done with the show yesterday, I have one of these heated discussions, ran into somebody yesterday afternoon who took issue with something that I was saying on the radio yesterday. Ooh, no, from I, in the building? Is it no, a no, 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 no. This is not a co-worker, but it was some advice that, for example, I was giving towards a, a, a co-worker. And, and it was one of those where every once in a while, I mean, I understand reasonable people disagree about things, but at the same time, it was one of those where you're, you're just kind of frustrated. Yesterday we were talking about taxes, and one of the things that they are finding is that people who've done their taxes this year, they're getting smaller refunds. And a lot of people are surprised by the fact that they're smaller refunds. Mm-hmm, okay. And there, there's a couple reasons for that. And I, I said two things on the radio that, that upset one of our listeners. First, I said, as a general rule, you don't want to get a big tax refund because that means you pay too much in taxes over the year. I mean, you know, it, we you, you have you have money for most people. You have money that's taken out and withholding. Mm-hmm, right. Well, okay. If you're getting a couple thousand dollars back at the end of the year, that just means you pay too much in taxes during the year. So you've given the government an interest-free loan for the course of a year, mm-hmm, and that's right. I mean, that's not a good move to make. Now, I understand that some people use that as a as kind of like a that, that's sort of like their savings account you know they, they they couldn't save the money during the year so you know they like getting it it's all nice back, get it at, back at once yep, yep. but you've you've given the government an interest-free loan and my point is always you're, you're much better off taking that instead of just loaning the government money for 12 months you never know yeah, you <clears throat> never know you know put it in a 401k plan or, or whatever so i i was trying to explain that somebody took issue with me about that guy says well i i I like getting two thousand dollars back at the end of the year and i said sir i I understand that i'm all i was saying is that just means that you've given the government two thousand dollars and now they're giving you your money back without paying you interest on it that's not a typically very good thing i did not think that was controversial secondly one of the reasons now it depends on on individuals and i haven't seen how my tax things work out but you know we had the big tax change that was made mm-hmm. and one of the things that i mean everybody thought okay well the taxes have been lowered but they're not necessarily seeing that on the refunds and this guy would say well i made about the same money as last year and my my refund check is going to be $500 less and it's those republicans that are messing me over and as I explained on the radio yesterday, I tried to explain to him. I said, well, I don't know your individual circumstances, sir, but here, here's what happened. Once they passed, once Congress passed the tax law changes, employers adjusted the withholding to take into account the lower tax amount. So it, I said, my guess is you probably, let's say you get paid twice a month. My guess is they took $25 less every two weeks out of your paycheck. And so, you know, $25 a month, uh, uh, every two weeks, you know, $50 mm-hmm. a month. Yep. So you, you paid, you had five, my guess is you had five or $600 in my example, less withheld. And so you had that during the year, so you don't get it to get back. 
and the guy didn't understand that concept. <laughs> and, and we went around for a couple minutes, and I said, well, you, what you really need to do to determine if you paid more taxes is you need to look at that line on your tax return that tells you you know, how much in taxes you paid, well, and, and then you owed, and then compare it to last year. One thing to point out, too, and this is completely off base from what you're talking about, but it's, it's along that line, is hacking and the uh, fraud yeah. and the ID fraud where people can get your refund before you get your refund. Right. Therefore, that money is then gone. Right, right. Well, in this case, the money wasn't gone. Right, it right. was he just got less. And I said, I, look, I don't know, but my guess is my guess is you just had you got it back during the course of the year mm-hmm, mm-hmm. instead of getting it back at the end of it, which is actually something you would think that most people would want. But and we talked about this when it first happened, but people have forgotten about that. So we were kind of going around and around. I said, look, I, I can't tell you whether you're paying more money or not unless you actually look at those lines and compare tax owed from one year with tax owed for the yes. And our our um, our conversation ended when he said blank Trump and hung up. <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of like, OK. <laughs> all right. When, when you've said that, you've said it all. But I stand by. Look, I don't try to play Clark Howard on the radio, but I do stand by my my comment that it. My guess is, if you're if you're surprised that you're you've earned about the same amount of money and you're not necessarily getting a large as large a refund, check the withholding because my guess is you got it. Don't be mad at your account. That's the bottom line. Right, right, right. Don't be mad at accountant. You probably did get a bit of a tax break and you got it back during the the year, but. You shouldn't be getting big chunks of money back anyways because that means you're just giving the government an interest-free loan. All right. I'm channeling Dave Ramsey and Clark Howard there. All right. Let us get started. All right. There are seven wonders of the world. I don't know how many people could name the Great Wall of China is one. The Taj Mahal in India is another. The Colosseum in Rome is another. Christ the Redeemer. This is the 125-foot-tall statue in Brazil, newly constructed, um, Machu Picchu, a pre-Columbian Incan settlement. It goes on and on. We've got seven wonders of the world. And then you have, perhaps in Cudahy, the eighth wonder of the world. I sent out a tweet with some of the background on this story. If you follow me, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. You'll see it. Here, Here is the story, and I want to get your reaction to it. Over... The objection of a large number of residents. Cudahy has decided to build the Taj Mahal of salt domes. What is a salt dome? A salt dome is a storage shed for road salt. All right. So here's what here's what the the powers that be in Cudahy have decided they want to do. They want to take three all in all done. $350,000, and they want to build a giant salt shed in Cudahy. And when I say salt, I mean like road salt. And the idea is they will fill this up with road salt. And then what will happen is they won't have to go and buy road salt as frequently, you know, during the course of winters. The idea would kind of be like, Let's say you like to drink Diet Coke, and the local grocery store, the Sendex, the Pick and Save, the Woodman's, whatever, has Diet Coke on sale, three 12-packs for 10 bucks, and you like Diet Coke. So you say, hey, three, ten, three 12-packs for, for 10 bucks. This is a great deal, because otherwise I might have to pay 12 bucks for three 12-packs. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go, and I'm going to buy... 812 packs of Diet Coke, three for 10 bucks. 
and then I'm going to have all the Diet Coke I'm going to need. But then I need some place to put all this Diet Coke. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build an addition to my house that's going to be the Diet Coke dome, and I'm going to fill it with this. That is what their thinking is in Cudahy. Their argument is, well, you know, by being able to buy enormous quantities of, of road salt, be able by being able to buy like, um, I don't know, 1,500 tons of, of road salt at the beginning of the year, we would make sure that we don't get into a situation where in the middle of a year we have to go out and we have to you know buy more and perhaps pay more for that. Now, there's a number of problems with this, and a lot of residents are, are pointing out that the projections that they're using in Cudahy to justify this are, are kind of off. For example, that the city claims that they've used an average of 1,600 tons of road salt over the last five years. Um, citizens who are looking at the numbers say, no, this isn't true. Actually, we, we, we use on average less than 1,000. And so why would you spend all this money to try to build this giant thing when we really don't necessarily need this? But the city is heck-bent on trying to build this giant salt dome, The again, the Taj Mahal of, of salt sheds. So over the objection of a large number of residences, residents, they have decided to go ahead and do this. Well, here's the other interesting aspect of the story, and it's what I want to open up the phone lines on. This is this is a salt shed. All right. You're talking a shed that you are going to put road salt in. You're not talking about, I don't know, a, a fully furnished condominium. You're talking about a salt shed that you are going to stick road salt in 1500 tons or whatever. They have all in and all done. They have approved spending somewhere north of $300,000 to build this shed. Now, it's not all going to build the shed. I think that's like $260,000. But then by the time you get into the improvements that you need to make, et cetera, et cetera, they're shelling out three hundred grand to build a shed to store road salt. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, look, I get that this shed sounds really cool. And my guess is that once it is spent with three dollars to $350,000, and once it is built, you will perhaps have people from neighboring communities, South Milwaukee, Bayview, you know, you name it, maybe even as far away as West Dallas, coming to Cudahy to marvel at the salt dome that they have put up. But at the same time, you're talking about north of $300,000 for a building that's going to contain road salt. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Is this a good expenditure of money, or is this another one of these head scratchers thinking, okay, what are these communities thinking? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Yes, the Salt Dome in Cudahy. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 414-799-1620. Mike in Cudahy. Mike, you're neck of the woods. Oh, thank you. Hi, Mike. How are you, How are you today? Good. What do you think? Well, what I think is um, the cost of us 
storage for the salt or new dome is uh, works like this. They have right now 300 tons uh, that they store, and they purchase 1,500 tons, 1,600 tons per year. Well, what happens, they can store, they purchase all the salt. Yep. They take 300 tons and they put it in a dome. So now that leaves them with 1,200 tons yep. sitting someplace. Well, they have to pay to store that salt. Yep. And it's an extravagant amount of money to store that salt. You know, it can cost upwards to $50 per ton for it off-site. So right now what would happen is they would get their money back in the long run. Well, I mean, I, but you can make that argument about you can make that argument about anything. You can say, well, I'm, I'm going to build an extra garage to fill it with Diet Coke, or I'm going to spend $30,000 on a motorcycle because I'm going to get 60 miles a gallon instead of my car getting 20 miles a gallon. Yeah, I mean, at exactly. some point in time, I mean, at some point in time, there's always going to be a payback. I guess there the, is the, ROI on that. Yeah. Right. I guess the, the other thing I have, Mike, is how can it cost a quarter million dollars to build a shed? <laughs> Yeah, that's true. It's, well, when you build that, you know, there's one thing that it has to be built, you know, according to, you know, the specifications to store salt yeah. because, you know, it's an environmental uh, issue. Yeah, you have, to have, you have to have a runoff thing. But, but we're talking, you're talking a shed. I guess that, that's the other thing. Now, admittedly, yeah. I, I don't get involved in building, but you're, you're not talking about something that's heated. You're talking about a big shed that you put yep. rose salt in. Now, thanks. Yeah. No, and I, and look, and I, look, and I get it. I mean, I understand the argument is that instead of having to go out and buy salt on the secondary market, we'll, we'll do this. Now, there's a number of residents who believe that Cudahy is cooking the books on this and, and overstating how much road salt they use in a given year and i and and i guess i don't know if they're doing that or not but but really a quarter million dollars to build a shed seriously i mean how many of you have sheds in your backyard now i understand that you know it's when you're talking about you know 1600 tons of road salt you're talking about you know something that is bigger than what you're going to have in your backyard but these are unheated you know metal buildings for goodness sakes that have something that where you have to have at least some trough or something to deal with again the the runoff when you have the salt spills when the loader takes it up but but this this is the type of thing to me. Now, some people would say, oh, they're just being, they're being smart. They're being good stewards because they're going to save money from this thing. But I mean, why? I, I get that, for example, when Costco, if you use Costco toilet paper, I get that Costco, when they have a sale on toilet paper, okay, you want to go out and you want to buy, you, you want to buy some toilet paper. You want to buy some extra toilet paper. But are you really going to buy 10 years' worth of toilet paper? And are you going to build a separate facility that will allow you to have this? number of residents are extremely bent out of shape about this entire situation, including asking these questions about how can it cost this much to build a shed? How can it cost a quarter million dollars alone to build a shed that you put salt in? Fair sort of questions. My guess is if any of these people in Cudahy that were making this decision were doing it with their own money, my guess is they would figure out a cheaper way to accomplish this, even if you think it's the right thing to do. But it's not their money. It's the taxpayers of people's money, uh, taxpayers' money. So that's what they'll be checking out. But I guess the good news is, is now... 
when you have the first snowfall of the year and all the different TV stations around here are trying to figure out where do we send the camera crew for the ultimate cliche TV shot, the area salt pile? Well, now, you know, you don't have to go down to the Milwaukee salt pile anymore. You can go to the Taj Mahal of salt piles, ones where people from all other communities go to look at and take photographs of. You can go to the Cudahy Salt Shed, perhaps the most expensive salt shed ever constructed in the state of Wisconsin. Glad to know you don't have needs in Cudahy beyond the salt shed. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. As we frequently say, elections have consequences, and one of those consequences is you have a philosophical change at the top of state government or federal government or whatever. And there's no question Tony Evers has a worldview much different than Scott Walker's worldview. In addition, there's no question that Tony Evers has constituencies that got him elected that he feels a need to, I think, appease. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. It is just the reality of that. And one of those constituencies that I think he needs to appease is the whole group of people who believe in extending rights for people who are in this country illegally. The other day we talked about the proposal in his budget proposal, which would allow people in this country illegally to obtain driver's licenses. I think that that is a stunningly bad idea, but I understand that for Evers and for a lot of his supporters, this is something that he campaigned on, and it's something that he wants to see follow through. I don't think it's going anywhere in the Republican-controlled legislature, but it's one of those issues. The other issue with regard to illegal immigration that Evers is pushing is actually a throwback to something that happened a number of years ago. In 2009, the last Jim Doyle budget included in the budget was a provision that would allow people in this country illegally to attend public schools, higher education in the in the state of Wisconsin and pay in-state tuition. That was actually a part of the Doyle budget in 2009. Once Scott Walker got elected, Republicans took over, that provision was, reve- was repealed. So no longer in-state tuition for people in the country illegally. As part of this budget proposal, Evers wants to reverse that. The idea is he wants to allow people that, again, are in the country illegally to be able to attend University of Wisconsin schools, and he wants them to be able to pay the same tuition as somebody who is in this country legally has paid. If you're a legal resident, you pay a certain price. He wants to extend that to people who are in this country illegally, but happen to be in this country illegally in the state of Wisconsin. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, there is skepticism among the Republican legislature for this. People are saying, well, look, you know, again, if we if we solve the immigration problem on the federal level, and we're able to reach some sort of compromise that allows people to who have come to this country illegally and are in the state of Wisconsin illegally um, some way of either permanent residency or legal residency or even citizenship, well, maybe at that point in time we can entertain the idea of whether we want to extend the benefit that is in-state tuition to them. But, but absent that happening, I guess the argument becomes, 
What part of illegal don't we understand? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Now, again, Tony Evers is very, very serious about this. It was in law for, you know, one, two-year period of time before it was pulled back. But let me tee this up, and especially for perhaps maybe you're a graduate of the UW system. Maybe you are paying for a kid now to be in the UW system. Is this a good idea? The argument kind of goes like this. We want to encourage people to get educations. And should we care whether what the legal status of the person is? If you're in this country and you're in the state, um, we want you to be as educated as possible. So why should we penalize people who are in this country illegally by making them pay more if they want to go to college and take advantage of the UW system? Well, I think there's several reasons that justify this, but 414-799-1620, in-state tuition for people in the country illegally, what do you think? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Let's start the conversation off. Here's a text that asks a very provocative question. Jeff, why would anyone ever go through the process of becoming a citizen of this country if you can receive all the benefits without being one? One of the benefits being, all right, in-state tuition. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're here illegally or not. We're going to treat you as if you are the same from a perspective of paying tuition to go to college as somebody who's, you know, grown up here. Does that make any sense at all? Let's start with Mary Jane and Mequon. Hi, Mary Jane. Hi. What do you think? Hello? Hi. Go ahead. So, you're on the air. I don't think... I- Yes, I think it's a gray issue. It's not black and white because I think someone who comes here illegally as an adult is should be treated differently than a dreamer. So I teach at UWM the kids who come here who have been here since they've been little, not by choice, not of their own making, I think that's a different scenario than the people who come here illegally as adults. And I do think it should be a two-tier system. So you would say for people who have some sort of status, like the the dreamers, maybe you allow them in. Everybody else who's not one of the dreamers, no. Well, correct. I think if you've come here illegally as an adult, that's different than people who are brought here illegally when they were children, not of their own making. And right now, we're not allowing them to get citizenship. Correct. You're, let me ask you this. If... If you do not have legal status in this country, all right, um, you, you you need that to get a job, or at least you're supposed to need, have that to get a job. What what is the purpose of saying, okay, well, we want to better train you, we want you to be better educated so you can get a better job if you're not legally allowed to work in the first place? Right, and I think it's a different. Can I tell you? I know of a young lady who got her Ph.D. at UWM, and she's now teaching at the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. She's an outstanding she's a dreamer. She does not have, and she has not been able to get citizenship because she's a dreamer. Yet she is a professor at our Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, don't get me wrong, Mary Jane. Look, I, I, no, I, I get it, and, so, I, and I understand. Look, here, I, I understand 
that there are all sorts of of people who are in this country. First of all, this is not limited to dreamers. Let, let's just let's let's understand this. This is not limited to people who fit into that dreamer category. This is if you're in the state illegally, you you get to you know you get to have the in-state tuition. Period. So this this is not limited in any fashion like that. Um, you know, dreamers have had a different type of legal status. And again, I understand that's sort of a debate here. I have no problem at all with saying, and I've said this repeatedly over the last couple of years, our immigration system right now is a mess. We need to figure out a way to straighten this out somehow. And unfortunately, it's getting worse, not better. I mean, the stories are that you've got a record number of people who are pouring into this country now, most demanding asylum, lots of families that are coming in. It's really overwhelming, I, I think, a lot of the, the southern states. And, and we've got the southern border states. And I think you, you've got to figure out a way to get a handle on it. It's gotten worse over the course of the last couple of years. And I'll let people argue why that that's going on. But But I do know from a perspective of resources, we have to figure this all out. And if on the federal level you're able to work something out and you're able to say, all right, we're going to create a, a permanent path to legal residency, for example, for the dreamers, the people you're talking about, and, and we're going to treat them the same way we treat, you know, other legal resident aliens. Well, well, that's fine. That that's that then becomes a different story. But until you work that out on the federal level, I don't think individual states should be picking and choosing and saying, okay, we're going to give this particular benefit to this class of undocumented person and not to that class. And as a practical matter, how, how do you work it out? How do you decide from a legal perspective who's a dreamer um, if who's a dreamer and who's just somebody that, you know, came into this country illegally at the age of, of 15, you know, why do we treat them differently? You got to work this out on the federal level. And, and I leave that to people who are a lot smarter than me to do that. But until you work this out on the federal level, I don't think the state of Wisconsin should be saying, okay, we're going to ignore the legal status of people and we're going to treat somebody who's in this country illegally the same as we treat somebody who, again, grew up in Cudahy. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Alan in Houstisford. Alan, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. Uh, I, I agree that these if you're here illegally and you don't fit in all these other cutesy little uh, programs, if you're illegal, that doesn't give you a, a, a shot at having uh, in-state tuitions. I mean, I, mm-hmm. my son's a graduate of UW-Madison, and I know how much it costs to send him through school and uh, the loans and everything we're paying off now. And I don't think if you are have an illegal status that gives you a right to have uh, in-state tuition. Well, I, right, I, I, exactly, and and maybe maybe the answer is some sort of sweeping immigration reform, but you you just I think you you can't you you make the system a magnet for people you make the state a magnet for people who are in this country illegally if you say okay we're going to give you these various advantages and these benefits and we're going to treat somebody who has an illegal status the same way we would treat a citizen. That just makes no sense to me, and I guess I would find it hard to believe, Alan, that there's too many countries across the, the world that would would do that. I mean, most countries you're in the country illegally, they find out, boom, they're gonna they're gonna deport you, not not reward yeah. you for staying in the country. That we're we're way too liberal in this country as far as bending bending over for those who 
uh, right. and legally comply. Right. Well, thanks for calling. And again, I, I, I appreciate. I, I will tell you this. I don't. I'm one of these guys that kind of recoiled at the notion of President Trump using his emergency powers to declare an emergency at the border. And, and that's just because I, I don't think that if you look at what the statute says on emergency powers, I, I don't think that this necessarily qualifies. And I am concerned that the next president would use this as a precedent to say, well, I think that there's a I think that there's a crisis with regard to firearms. And so I'm going to use my executive powers to uh, effectively impose things that require confiscation of firearms, things like that. I mean, you, you can come up with scenarios like that. So while I, I don't think the president is right in declaring the emergency, at the same time, we've got a heck of a mess on the borders. And like I say, it's getting worse. You look at these numbers and you see record numbers of people who are coming into this country who who do not have legal status. One of the big things that's changed is now it's more families and the families are asking for asylum. And then again, you can hold them for a couple of days, then they sort of disappear into the fabric of the country. This is getting worse. And it is a full if it's not an emergency, it's an absolute mess. I just think we make the mess worse if we decide to grant benefits to people that are in this country illegally. 414-799-1620. Dave and Grafton. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Well, Jeff, I think you just summarized it. You know, this is a huge, um, complex problem. The very first thing that um, that I thought is, well, well should illegal aliens even be allowed to attend paying out-of-state tuition. Mm-hmm. We're we're underwriting these out-of-staters as uh, state taxpayers in the UW system. So if, if you're looking yeah, at... Yeah, less, it, but yes, but, but, but in theory, yeah, right. And, right. and so, yeah, if you're saying, what part of illegal don't you understand, then, then they shouldn't be attending even paying the out-of-state tuition. And this is just virtue signaling by the governor. Operationally, this is going to be very, very difficult. Number one, we don't have any numbers of how many people this is going to affect. Right now, if you ask the UW system to say, well, how many illegals are attending and paying out-of-state tuition? They don't have that number. Right, and, um, they, and, they, and they will never have that number because they'll say, we don't want to ask that. We, you know, we, we don't want to know that because if we knew that, then maybe we have to do something about that. You know, we won't have to want to disclose the the legal status or the illegal status of any of our students. We don't want to cooperate with immigration. You're right. They're not going to want to know it one way or the other. And and it's two separate things. Your legal status and your place of residency, uh, they don't necessarily intersect. So when you apply to a UW school, you, you show... Uh, a tax bill or you show a utility bill or uh, or something else to prove your your in-state residency you don't show your your birth certificate or your your legal status so again it's just virtual signaling i think if you went back and looked at the videotape this was probably one of the uh places in the budget proposal where you saw robin boss uh, mouthing no way right? <laughs> yeah. and shaking his head vigorously back and forth. Yeah, it, I, you, I think you're, you're. I mean, look, I, I think this uh, this whole idea is is going to be going nowhere. But it it does raise the, this larger point. Whenever I talk about these various conversations, I, I I I always get the emails from people saying, "Well, you know, don't don't you understand? People are just coming into this country and they're looking for you know a better life. And how can you deny them?" To which I always say, ah, "There is." 
there is a, a process that you go through, and I know a number of people who have become naturalized citizens or who have gone through and jumped through all the hoops in order to be in this country legally, whether they've gotten green cards or, or whatever it is. They've gone through this. If you simply start to say, well, all right, we, we, we don't need to do that anymore, and we're going to look the other way in all this stuff, what incentive do people have to become citizens? Figure it out on the national level. If you decide that, all right, we're going to create a mechanism to allow people who are currently in this country illegally, dreamers or not, to stay in this country and get legal residency, all right, fine. Then you can have this discussion that if you're a legal resident of in this country, a resident alien, and you're also in the state of Wisconsin, therefore legally, and you're paying state taxes and you're working and you're doing all these type of things, all right, then you can have a discussion as to whether you are entitled to in-state tuition. But until that all happens, and it's got to start, in my opinion, on the national level first, this idea has got to be a complete and total non-starter. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, so Eric, before you leave, reach in your pocket. Show me your wallet. Show me your wallet. Jeez. No, no, I'm not asking you to show me what's in your wallet. Just show me your wallet. You got a, you got a, you got a moderately sized wallet. I got this for Christmas from my son, and I have to admit it's a little too big for me. A little too big, I'm not, right? I'm not a big fan it's of a moderately sized yeah. wallet. Gru, who's producing the show, reach in your pocket. Show me your wallet. Oh, you got a teeny tiny wallet. I like that. You got a teeny tiny wallet. Streamline. He says it's, it's empty. Okay. <laughs> well, here, boys, you want to see a wallet. There is, <laughs> there is my wallet. That's uh, a book. That is my Constanza wallet. Now, just I, I tell you, this is one of the beauties of Twitter. If you go to my Twitter account, at Jeff Wagner 620 I just, Mr. Bilstead, actually just took a picture of me standing in the studio with my Costanza wallet. That, of course, comes from Seinfeld. George, George, you ever see his, he had oh, one of yeah. these wallets oh, yeah. that were just filled it, yeah. with stuff? But, I mean, that is a man-size <laughs> wallet right there. How much stuff in there do you actually need or use? Well, I mean, I, I theoretically, I, I think I need. Every, I mean, I'm looking through it. It's got, <laughs> it's got credit cards in there. It's got the. It's got my, you know, membership cards to the gym. It's got How many my gyms insurance card. It's got you know my state bar card. I've got the uh, you know the Fresh Perks card. You know, and I've got I've got some dough in there and stuff. Okay. No, it's it, it's it's a heavy sucker. And again, if you if you want to see, I want to I want to be visual. So it's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. It's me holding the Costanza wallet. But I. I it's it's big. There's that, no question that could about mess it. up your back wearing. Well, <laughs> it could. Well, I I will tell you there are there are some trousers that I have. <laughs> True story that it, it's there's there's the way the pockets in the back are cut. The wallet goes in and it does not want to come out. I honestly, <laughs> believe it. I believe honest it. to goodness, I have been in this. It, it's fine with like blue jeans, which I wear mostly. But one time, I don't know if I'm I'm in a grocery store and I'm. I, you get to the point where you have to pay for the things. You've got all the stuff on there. And I go to reach into the back pocket, and it doesn't want to come out of the pocket. <laughs> and so now I'm, I'm digging around in my butt. Here, here is, okay, Mr. Radio Guy, like, digging around in his butt, trying to squeeze the, this wallet out of there, thinking, okay, maybe I should get a smaller yes, one. Yes, you should I, consider. I, okay, but at the same time, I will tell you, I have, I have purchased, like, these smaller wallets and stuff, 
and I'm always unsatisfied. I mean, it, it's just, it's, I, I, it's just, I, I have well, all this. How often other... do you need to take out your state bar license? Well, rarely, but you know, I, I might need it for some point in time. <laughs> or, I mean, what I, would you need it for? Well, if I'm if I'm going to visit somebody in prison, and I want to get in there. right. Okay, I, right. I, I guess you, you you're right. Maybe I could be, but but I, okay. Got all these different credit cards, and you've got the stuff. I you never know when you're going to need something like that. So. Yeah, but right. uh, well, no, I'm not necessarily right. But it's it's me. <laughs> so I've got the Costanza wallet. It's just completely and totally jammed, and it's it's always been like that. I mean, I I've actually got. I've got a couple more. I, I love these. The place out of West Bend, Rolfs, used to make them. I'm, I'm, and, and so I, I have like two more at home because I, I have the wallet. It'll last for years and years, and then it wears out, and I just replace it with another one. Now, do you replace the items inside? Are, are you up to date? Or do you have credit oh. cards that expired in oh, 2012? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I, I'm, I'm up to date on all that. You got that. like a I, journal uh, well, <laughs> insurance card? <laughs> no, no, no. I get, I get rid of the insurance cards and all that. I'm up to date. But I've just got, I've got a complicated life. I've got a lot of, lot of stuff in there. Now, there is a reason why I, I am sharing this. There's a story. Because my Costanza wallets here, they, they may be going the way of the dodo bird. All right, here, here's, here, let me read, share a story. The USA Today had this today. You grab your keys, your smartphone, and your wallet when you leave the house. Would it be such a disaster if you left your wallet behind? In the not-too-distant future, it might not be. The physical wallet is on borrowed time. Your phone, after all, increasingly provides utility in a digital form for many of the reasons you... Jeff Wagner, schlep a Costanza-sized mm-hmm. wallet in the first place. I mean, think about it. At the airport, you hand your iPhone or your, you hand your iPhone rather than a paper document to the TSA mm-hmm. who looks at your phone, boom, you, you got your boarding pass. You can scan your phone entering ballparks, movie theaters, and concert halls. Um, you get the the, I, the Apple Pay thing or yep, whatever. I use that. Love it. Right. Okay. Love my, it. Yeah, my wife just got that. So, you know, you there's really... I, I mean, I'm one of the last people in the world that carries cash still, but, but you know, I mean, I know more and more people don't do this. Most states will accept an electronic copy of your automobile's insurance card during a, a traffic stop. And what they're saying is in the very, very near future, you know, they think that you're going to be able to have your driver's license on, on, the, on, the, on the phone, that you're not going to need, you're not going to need any of this physical stuff. And your phone, by the way, you access it with a thumbprint, so you're the only one that can bring up that driver's license, or you're the only one that can pay using the credit card that you put into your phone. Thus, it's actually safer than carrying a wallet. Well, I mean, when you think about the technology, I mean, I, I'm looking, I'm looking through the stuff that's in my wallet. It, it's credit cards. Okay, so you, you you have, you know, you do, you do the Apple Pay or or whatever. It's your insurance card. Well, okay, how often do you need that, or, or should you be able to just put that on on your phone? All those different types of things. And given again, like we were saying a minute ago, that cash is becoming more and more obsolete. That, yep. that people just don't carry cash. You might be able to completely and totally get away without carrying a wallet in the very near future. All right. And this is the starting point. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Now, for ladies, I know that this is already a trend. I think more and more people are starting to uh, abandon purses as anything other than a fashion accessory because it's like okay what do you really need um do you need do you need a wallet 
guys, are we ready to just ditch the wallets entirely five years from now, 10 years from now? Are we going to need wallets? Are anybody, is anybody, other than maybe a dinosaur like me rolling around in the tar pit, are we going to be carrying wallets anymore? Will you miss that? Is this the new trend? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Is it time for me to say goodbye to Old Faithful? And will that be the position? If your driver's license, you can access it on your cell phone and you know anything else you need, you can access through the cloud or whatever. Do we need to carry wallets anymore? Are you ready to dump yours? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line if you want to join us. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. My favorite Twitter comment so far I sent out. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. Picture me standing in the studio holding my giant wallet. People look at this and go, oh, my God. Here's one of our texts. Beverly says, uh, she responds to my tweet, I swear that's my husband's wallet. I thought he was the only one. And, of course, a number of people who are responding with that scene from Seinfeld where George Costanza is just holding the, the giant stuffed wallet and it kind of explodes and stuff goes all over the streets. I, okay, th- th- this is me. I acknowledge it. Again, you, if you follow me on Twitter, you can you can see it. But I'm being told now that nobody's going to be carrying wallets in the next couple of years. Everything's going to be on your smartphone. 414-799-1620. Dan in Wauwatosa. Dan, you're first. Good afternoon. Dan. Yeah. Hi, Dan. You're on the air. Hello. Oh, hi. Um, I just thought I'd make a comment that if you if you uh, carry a wallet with credit cards or if you have things transferred to your phone to maybe be able to pay your bills, you still have to have a system that's working. And I'll just share a quick story. I was in Walgreens this morning, and their systems are down and have been down for a while and might be down for another day or two. Right. <laughs> So we're all looking at each other, and nobody has cash. Right. Yeah, nobody has cash, right, exactly. Nobody has cash. So what the heck are you supposed to do? Well, I mean, I, I, it doesn't happen that often, but when it does, what do you do? Just make sure you're, you're carrying some cash somewhere in your pocket? Some, you well, know, yeah, but, people, but, yeah, but people don't carry the cash anymore. No, thanks, that, that's the issue. I mean, I, I was raising that point. I know... That, that the current trend, because I, I fly a bit. Now it's all recreation, but I, I fly for fun. And um, one, I mean, nowadays, you, you don't need to get the physical boarding pass anymore. You can just, you have the app, you can sign in, and, and they can put it on your, your phone. And it's it's a convenience. Now, I don't do that. I'm still kind of old-fashioned. I, I print up the boarding pass, you know, when I check in 24 hours before the flight. And, and one of the reasons I do it is maybe this paranoia I have because last summer I was at uh, Jerry, I was at, in Canton, Jerry Kramer's Hall of Fame thing, and my my phone died. The battery completely and totally died, and I, I just I, I had it was really you feel like you're kind of naked. You have like no access at all. So if I had done that, well, I would have had to scurry around. And I mean, I guess you could have gone through it the old fashioned way. But I'm wondering, you know, to your point. What happens if, again, their computer systems, the store goes down, or what happens, you know, if your phone dies or something like that? Now, admittedly, it doesn't happen that often. Let's talk to Dick in Clintonville. Dick, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello there. Yeah, um, I don't have to worry about that because I got a flip phone. I I carry $400 worth of cash in my wallet all the time. Um, I'm a trucker. Um, I don't fly i drive <laughs> right well, okay well why why 
Why do you carry all that cash? If I have problems, like if my credit card for the company doesn't work sometimes, I can put fuel in the truck and they can okay. pay me back. Got it. Okay, so it, again, it's for that emergency situation or something like that. I've got one personal credit card and I, pay, I put gas on that uh, for the car and anything else, and it's paid off every single month I have. What do you call it yesterday? Uh, uh, mooch or something like that? I oh, uh, freeloaders. Freeloaders. Yeah, free okay. I, I haven't paid interest in 20 years. <laughs> Got it. No. Thanks, Nicole. All right. Well, I, again, I'm, I, I, if, if that's one of the reasons why I sent out the picture of me holding the wallet is people will look at the wallet and go, my God, you know, and, and to, to Bill Stat's point, it's like, hey, is that, is that throwing off your balance? Are you hurting your back carrying that thing around? And I, it's just, it, it's always, do I need everything that's in there? No. Um, could I get by, I guess, just with my phone? And yeah, maybe, but I tell you, it, it would be tough. This is the thing. If I would walk, I walk out of that house without my wallet and I, I'm just going to feel completely and totally naked. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, I'm going to hold on to my wallet as long as I, I still look reasonably normal because I can pull stuff out of it a lot quicker than I can access something on my cell phone and i'm concerned about holding up lines and whatnot yeah right right but once once everybody else has done that once you're the dinosaur you think you might be willing to change yeah i might but but i would probably have to get used to like the feeling that i had have like in my pocket where <laughs> yeah, right where it's like not there yeah i i know i, I know what you mean no thanks for, i mean like i say i've i've tried I, I've I've tried. I recognize it is ridiculous to walk around with a wallet that is as big as the one I have. And it is a true story. I have been in grocery store lines and the damn thing doesn't want to come out of my back pocket. And then then you're in a really embarrassing type of situation because you've got to pay with coin of the realm and you're fidgeting around, you know, <laughs> it, it's just it's not a good look. OK, it's not a good look for any of us. And it's particularly not a good look for me as you're kind of fidgeting around with this type of stuff. But I, I so I've tried the smaller wallets and it just it, it's it's just not as satisfying an experience. But I mean, I, I I understand now with, you know, you you can most of the stuff once they uh, once they put driver's licenses or allow you to access a driver's license on your cell phone or maybe the passport information on the cell phone. Once you're able to do that. Um, you know, wallets really perhaps become unnecessary. Let's talk to Tom in Greenfield. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, Jim, if I had one of those type of wallets like that, like you had uh, a few years back, and I got rid of that, I ditched it to, to like, you know, one, the, the woman had these cosmetic eggs, these small ones type right. of thing, and I, and I fit, it fits all my stuff into that thing. I put it in my front pocket, don't have to worry about sitting that on, on, on uh, right. trying to balance myself and everything else, and it, <laughs> <laughs> and it's easier. I, I carry cash in that. Uh, Jeff, uh, a story. Uh, over this past weekend, I was uh, doing a, a thing at one of the churches and the women, uh, women's conference. And the women all were paying with uh, debit cards and stuff like that. And I'm laughing because it was one and two and three dollars. And I'm right. like, they're pulling out this stuff out of the purse. Uh, guys, uh, we all have cash. Right. Well, that, that I mean, right. Now, that, I think it is. Thanks for calling me. I, I do. And, you know, that's the whole other discussion that we have from time to time is, is cash going to continue to be relevant and stuff? But this is, I mean, this is the other thing. I, and I tell you where I'm noticing this more and more. And actually, my wife has started that. Um, she has this big purse. 
And she she doesn't take it as many places anymore because she's realized that there's only a couple things that, that she needs, especially, you know, the credit card, the driver's license. So she'll put it like in a small thing that fits in her pocket and her cell phone, maybe a tad of cash. And then, for example, if, if you're going to the, the basketball game, you're going to Pfizer Forum for Marquette or the Bucks or whatever, you don't have to open your purse and have them search it. You don't have to lug it around. All you have is this little thing. I think that that probably is the wave of the future. But I just I just don't know. It's going to be tough for me to give up the Costanza wallet. I'm just saying. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I am being bombarded with photographs of people's wallets. And I, I guess all, all I have to say is I, I don't. And that's great because I am not alone. There are a number of us out there that have these obscenely large wallets. Now, M- Melissa Barkley, you're 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 moving away from the giant purse. As well. Yes. Well, I mean, people that see me come to work, I do have a big, you know, leather purse. But when I go out, like your wife, I, you know, small it. I get a much smaller purse. Um, sometimes, you know, just putting stuff in my pocket that works as well. But you don't want to be lugging that around. And I don't know. As a woman, you kind of look around if you're carrying a large purse just to make sure no one's. You know, right. going to be well, behind sure, you. Yeah, you want steal the purse. You yeah. want, yeah, you want something a little bit smaller. So I agree. And let me ask you this: Is your wallet in your back pocket? Whoa, that's big. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so my chiropractor would not like that. They say, you know, having that big wallet, uh, you know, sitting on it all day. They say oh, you yeah. should get a front pocket one. Maybe that might be an option. Well, okay. That's huge. Yeah. I have to say, it's like a book. This is like this sitting is, on a okay. book. If you want to see it, I took a picture of this. It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. You can follow me on Twitter. There's me standing there. This would not fit in my front pocket. <laughs> you know, this, no, this that's would, true. This is not going in that. Well, I think front a lot pocket. of people might want to know how much money do you have in that. Well, but it's okay. There, there is, there is there? money, but look, but there's all these. There's all oh, the photos. There's, there's photo. There's credit cards and credit cards and credit cards. And Bill Stat was correctly raising the point about how many of those do you actually need. Right. And the, the truth is. Well, probably not. Not <laughs> that many. I mean, I, I mean, for example, I'm carrying around my my, my HSA, you know, thing, you know, sure. but but I would know typically if I was going to go to the doctor and I would need that or something to, you know, I there, I admit I don't need all this, but it's just this has been my security. I've, I've Maybe carried, that's something you should have done for Lent. Downsize your wallet. I've right? Al- <laughs> all right. Now, wait a second. I have already given up. You talked me. I was going to start oh, no. into giving up candy. You have now, thanks to you, I have now expanded this to giving up sweets. So I passed up donuts. I passed up cupcakes. I'm passing up pie. I'm going to be in a really crummy mood, you know, <laughs> oh, relatively no. soon. Yes. Now you want me to give up my giant well, Costanza wallet? Perhaps. Just food for thought. Now, you say this would drive your chiropractor nuts because it would yeah okay well <laughs> i'm hanging on jeff wagner on wtmj we have our winner of the pair of gordon lightfoot tickets um two more tickets to give away we'll give them away during tomorrow's show actually tomorrow's show is an, an early out i think um only to one o'clock because spring training baseball it, it's the last spring training game i think that's going to interrupt my show because keep in mind we have daylight saving time i understand it's not savings it's daylight saving time and it, the, the way it'll all work is for the balance of spring training, there there won't be any games that interrupt the program. But tomorrow, I think there's an early start, 1 o'clock, I believe. But we will, between noon and 1, we will give away a pair of tickets. 
to see Gordon Lightfoot, and I'm a huge fan of Gordon Lightfoot. I I, I mean that. It's uh, if you don't win the tickets, it, it's worth buying them to see him. He was so influential for so many of the great singer-songwriters of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. So keep listening. We'll have a chance for more tickets oh, to give away. All right. I I want to revisit something we talked about during la- one of the days last week, but in a, in a different context because there's, there's a new story that's out. Tony Evers, the, the governor, state of Wisconsin, as part of his budget, he wants to see the state minimum wage increased. And he's got this commission, and he wants the commission to figure out how we can get the state minimum wage up to 15 bucks an hour in, in the next few years. All right? I, I have made this argument before, and the, the whole argument being unintended consequences. And I think that there's lots of people who are pushing for an increase in minimum wage who don't understand the real world implications of something that the thing that i always say is if if you have the free market decides what what a job is worth free market might decide hey this particular job is worth $20 an hour or this particular job is worth $9 an hour and i don't think government should have a role in trying to decide Gee, you've got a job that in the free market it's worth nine dollars an hour, but here we're going to make employers pay fifteen. I just don't think that that's government's role. I also think that when that happens, when you start paying more than a job is worth, and by when I say more than a job is worth, I mean when you start paying more than you can find people to do the job for, it creates all sorts of of problems, many of which people don't even think of. And this is the example of this. There's a story, it's in The Guardian, which is this extreme left-wing newspaper from Europe. But, But here's the story, and it's talking about Amazon and Whole Foods. Um, Amazon, you will remember, um, on, on November 1st, Amazon was getting all this criticism last year about slave wages, et cetera, et cetera. So what they said is, okay, here's what we're going to do. We are going to enact a $15 an hour minimum wage for all of our employees. So that, that was it. And it was the criticism they was getting was directed at warehouse workers, but, but it doesn't matter. They said, okay, all our employees, $15 minimum wage as a minimum. That included Workers at the at Whole Foods. I don't think we have any more Whole Foods left in in this area. We had a couple that I believe closed, but oh, there is a Whole Foods on the east side. Okay, all right. Bruce says there's a Whole Foods on the east side. In, in any event, Whole Foods, which Amazon purchased in 2017, that this $15 an hour minimum wage applied to them as well. All Whole Foods employees paid less than $15 an hour, saw their wages increase to at least that level. All other team members received a dollar an hour wage increase. Team leaders received a $2 an hour wage increase, which is that, that kind of triple trickle-up trickle factor. I mean, let's say their starting salary is 12 bucks. You bump the starting salary to 15. Well, what about the people that are already making 15? Well, you have to, you got to give them a raise as well. So th- there's this cost that's associated with it. But that's what Whole Foods did when Amazon jacked up their minimum wage. Everybody went up to 15. If you were making 15 or more, you got a dollar an hour raise. So that's the cost. All right. So you might say, well, that's good. These employees are doing better now because they're making more money. 
per hour. It not that great. Well, here's the other side of the story. Whole food employees are apparently telling that this this newspaper that what's happened since Amazon increased the, the prices since and Amazon owns Whole Foods. Um, what's happened is the employees have seen widespread cuts in their scheduled shifts across many stores, meaning that there's at the end of the day, there's not really a wage increase. And in some cases, people are making less money. Here's, let me read you a portion of the story. My hours went from 30 to 20 a week, said one Whole Foods employee in Illinois. Workers interviewed for the story were reluctant to speak on the record for fear of retaliation. The Illinois-based worker explained that once the $15 minimum wage was enacted, part-time employee hours at their store were cut from an average of 30 to 21 hours a week. Full-time employees saw average hours reduced from 37 and a half hours to 34.5 hours. The worker provided schedules from November 1st to the end of January of this year showing hours for workers in their department significantly decreased as the department's percentage of the entire store labor budget stayed relatively the same. So in other words, what they're saying is they didn't spend more on labor. What they did is they cut hours, so they were spending the same thing. The How do they do this? Well, the worker says we just have to work faster to meet the same goals in less time. In Maryland, another Whole Foods worker said their regional management is forcing stores to cut full-time employee schedules by four hours to 36 hours a week. The hour cut makes that raise pointless as people are losing more than they gained and we rely on working full shifts. Another Whole Foods employee in Oregon said, at my store, all full-time team members are 36 to 38 hours per week. So what do workers do if they want a full 40 hours? Um, They have to take a little bit of paid time off each week to fill their 40 hours. In other words, take some of their vacation. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I am not surprised by this. Now, you can argue, I guess, that the, the benefit of this to the employee is that you're not working as many hours. So let, let's say you, you, you've gotten a raise. It's $15 an hour, but the employer has cut your hours from 36 to 32. So essentially stay the same. Well, you can argue you're working four hours less a week. So you're getting paid for what you previously had to work 36 hours. Now you're only working 32 hours. So you, you have that extra four hours of time off. I think that is a very, very poor trade-off, though. And I guess here's, this is what I would describe, together with a couple other things, automation and things of the like, this is that unintended consequence. You say to an employer, here, raise the minimum wage that you have to pay. But in many cases, what happens in the real world is the employees, yeah, they get a bump in their hourly rate, but you know what? They end up worse off. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If more companies were to do this, do you think that they would be actually end up paying out more dough? Or is this the future? You make people pay 15 bucks an hour. All right, that's what the pressure is. They agree to pay 15 bucks an hour. Will the employees really benefit at the end of the day? My argument is no, they won't. 414-799-1620. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 
We have a text. By cutting hours of some to under 30 hours a week, Amazon Whole Foods can now save the cost of providing mandatory health insurance as well. So those who are getting paid more for less hours are actually doing worse, and some of them probably lost health insurance as well. So now they get to work multiple jobs to make up the difference and may need to get government insurance. Uh, $15 an hour in a job that really doesn't warrant it comes with a price. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Amen. That That's... That's the issue. Here's another text. Jeff, it's only common sense that the business still has to make a certain profit margin, which means they can only pay out so much money for labor, pay people more money, get less hours. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Vincent on the northwest side. Hi, Vincent. Good afternoon, Jeff. You know, I don't think this is a real unintended consequences of, of, of Amazon raising uh, uh, their, their salary to $15 an hour. It reminds me of, for example, when the, uh, uh, when, when the unions are fighting for, for, for their, for the individuals for raising pay. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so what they do is when they, when the individuals get the pay, then the union, union, uh, uh, raises their dues. So basically they're going to make the same thing. They're really not getting a benefit from them actually uh, having their pay raise. Right. That's exactly what Amazon is doing. These, in the, these individual employees didn't ask for more time off. They're, they don't see that as a benefit. They just wanted to raise their salary. Right, and now it's a surprise. It's that it's like, okay, I've got the more money per hour, but now, all right, I'm, at the end of the day, when my paycheck comes in every two weeks, it's no more than it was before. What happened here? That, that, that's it, but but that's that's company playing games. So 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 actually, Amazon is not really uh, you know do, giving them any benefit right. from from what they're doing. So so Amazon should have came to them and said, listen, you know we we can either have you work for the same pay for forty hours, or work for the same pay, you know, say raise your raise your pay and have you work for the same pay at thirty hours. Right. You know that 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 that's absolutely ridiculous. And but so, for a from a PR perspective, Vincent, this is it makes Amazon look good. Amazon says, hey, we're going to pay you. $15 an hour, and people don't then think about the follow-up that to check it out six months later and say, yeah, they're paying more, but people are working less time. Yeah, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. I understand that the minimum wage probably needs to be raised. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's $15 an hour is the thing or, or, or we gradually come to that. But the minimum wage needs to be raised. And it's always at some point because of, of the cost of living. There is, you know, if we didn't have the minimum wage being raised, we still be making two twenty five, two twenty five an hour. So right. at some point, it has to go up. So, but but the, but the argument is on how much it goes up at a certain time. Yeah. And so I think that's where at the point we at, we're at. Well, and I will tell you the honest goodness truth, Vincent. And I say I don't know. How I would be curious to know how many people really are working for the minimum wage, and I and I say this sincerely because I know people who run fast food restaurants, who own chains of fast food restaurants. I know people who run retail stores. I understand. I know people who run restaurants, and they all tell me that they they don't pay minimum wage because if you pay minimum wage, you can't get people to work for you. The job market is such now that it, it's just so competitive. If you're paying $8 an hour, well, you you know, to, at your hardware store, the, the person you're paying $8 an hour can go across the street to, you know, the big box retailer and get 10. I don't know how many people are actually making minimum wage anymore. So that that's the first question I would have. But, yeah, I do think that this ends up being the consequence. I mean, I've told this story before. When 
and and this was the the former iteration of the company I I worked for. This is back when it was like scripts, or maybe even when it was journal broadcast. When when the rules changed, that said you had to offer insurance to people if they averaged. I think now it's thirty hours a week. It used to be. It's a thirty hours a week room. You're, it's it's. You have to offer insurance to people who average thirty five. Is that it? Okay. It's 35. Okay, you have to offer insurance to them. Okay, well, we had we had part-timers who were working, you know, like just under the 40 hours, but they were still part-time. Well, what happened is the company ended up cutting their hours back to 30 because they didn't, they, they didn't, they wanted to make sure that they weren't going to qualify for the insurance. They, so, so the people still didn't get insurance, and what happened is they ended up having less hours that they could work, and so you had to take a second job or things like that. I'm just saying there's all these unintended consequences that are out there. All right, Amazon gets credit for raising the minimum wage, great, but the workers really aren't any better off. Let's talk to Joe in Sheboygan. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon. I used to work at NPS, and uh, the cooks there were the lowest-paying people, and they used to work eight hours a day from six in the morning because the breakfast was so big, and they worked six hours till like they worked uh, from six till two. Okay. But then all of a sudden, they cut their. You know, they wanted a raise. They cut their hours to four, and they left the cook with only one eight-hour person. And those other people only got four hours and lost their benefits. Right, yeah. So they're really not better off. Yeah, yes, you got a little bit more money per hour. Maybe you got a 50 cent an hour raise or a dollar raise or $2. But at the end of yeah. the day, every two weeks when you get your paycheck, now, number one, you don't have insurance. And number two, <laughs> the paycheck's a lot smaller. you got to go find a second job to make ends meet. That's just what happened. Right. Uh, thanks. So, again, I, I, and I, I bring this up only – from the perspective, and I know our first caller, Vincent, didn't like it when I was saying unintended consequences, that there are, I mean, there are real-world realities that end up happening when you make some of these decisions. So when you see the people that are, are pressuring, and look, I, I'm not against people making money, all right, that there's... I, but when when you see people saying, okay, you know, we want our evil employer to boost our salaries from $10 an hour to $15 an hour, that that, that that's fine. And everybody says, well, that's great. You, you can't make it go out of it on, on $10 an hour here. Raise it to 15 etc. I, I understand all that, and that might feel good. But the real world, that money is going to end up coming from somewhere. The the advantage, the, the point that I also make on many occasions, when you look at especially the automation that's that's out there, more and more, let's just take the fast food industry, more and more fast food restaurants are turning to automation. And there's all sorts of various things that you can do to automate the cooking process, but the, the most obvious one is the ordering process. All right, so more and more places now have these kiosks. You walk into the store, and instead of instead of walking up to the counter, and there's the guy there or the gal there that you place the order to, you walk up to the kiosk. And you just punch in your order. I want the I want the burger doodle, and I want the fries, and I want the large Coke. You punch that all in, and then then you go up to the counter and, and you pay for it, or maybe you pay at the kiosk with a credit card or something. And there's one person there that's putting together the order and giving it to you, but it's only one person instead of three people because now people don't need to take your order. That's just the reality that's there. So when you hear this, and this is what I found to be so interesting about this conversation, and you know, Amazon, okay, that's great. We're paying people 15 bucks an hour, but the employees aren't any better off. Be careful what you wish for. This is Jeff Wagner. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa, before you leave, I'm looking at this story and I'm having a you've got to be kidding me moment. All right, now, here, here is the now. I know you you love cats. You're, I do. You're a cat I'm a cat lover, lover. Mm-hmm. And, and you know I I just I love dogs. You like and doggies, I'm, and, and mm-hmm. I I just um my 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 little dog Sasha is the light of my light. You know, I, I mean, but between my my beautiful wife and my dog, I'm just I'm happy you're at really home happy, and stuff. Yeah. Like, it, 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 I'm in a good place in my life. All right, and I think with I mean I think pets add something to the quality of people's life whether it's cats or dogs or or whatever. So there's this study. I'm just looking at it just come out. The headline on the story about it is seniors walking leashed dogs could increase risk of injury. Okay, seniors walking leashed dogs could increase risk of injury. And long story short, what it says, and this is one of these things where I assume the taxpayers paid for this. University of Pennsylvania researchers found emergency room patients 65 and older, um, an increase in them with fractures linked to injuries from walking leashed dogs. So the, the bottom line is that, okay, people, older people walking the dogs and they trip or they fall right. or, and it's predominantly true, 80% of the patients suffering injuries were women. So it's mm. predominantly, it's harder on women. Um, most common fracture was the, the hip. Okay, so I, I, I don't know that you need a big study to prove this. I mean, okay, so you've got you know older people that are walking dogs, and if they slip and fall, chances are their injury is more likely to add, put them in the emergency room than if somebody who's 30 years old slips and falls. That would be right. Yeah, it, it just kind of makes sense. But... I guess so. I'm reading this, thinking, okay, this is not surprising. You You're thinking it's a no-brainer, right? You don't, right? I mean, okay, because I, I don't know if it's more. I don't know if older people are more inclined to fall when they're walking the dog. Just when they do fall, you know, you're, you sustain an injury to your hip or your ankle or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're more, and that that all makes sense to me. But my my bigger point, I'm thinking, okay, well, so what? What what's the purpose? Are they telling me that I shouldn't have my dog? You know that I'm, that you know that you're gonna you're gonna get rid of your dog walking leash dog. So what they say that this is the bottom line of all this. They say, well, okay, um, if you're doing this, maybe what you do is um, obedience training for dogs, so you don't need to have the dog out on a leash. What kind of advice uh, is that? You know, I mean, it was, not very good I, mean I mean, really, this is not yeah. a. I mean, I think they're saying just be careful because, well, obviously, if yeah. you're older and you're walking a dog, you, you're going to have a chance of falling. Well, it, well or but, anybody, really. Right, if, but, if you're older and walking, yes. I mean, and this is somebody who I'll, I'll put myself in the older category. I mean, yeah, right. if you, you know, if you slip and fall chances are your bones get more brittle as you right. get older and I mean, stuff. I mean, you could probably say the same thing. Older people have a greater chance of falling in the shower. Why, I mean, you know, whatever. something like that, yeah. Okay, I mean, knock on wood, having said that, though, the only time I ever fell down and, and seriously in myself, I, I broke my wrist when I was playing I was playing um, catch, and my friend Evan, thank you, Evan, you know, threw this ball, and I decided I was going to be Willie Mays, and I was running after it. We were playing on the old polo fields that are now the soccer fields out on 76th and Good Hope, and I went to make this spectacular diving catch, extended, 
caught the ball but landed on my wrist and busted my left wrist. It's okay, but so that but that happened when I was in my twenties. Right. Had nothing to do with this. So you're going to continue walking your dog, I, I'm Sasha. You don't have to worry. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to continue. That's good. I am continuing to to take you out, and I will walk you whenever you need to. Today she slept. <laughs> so she, I actually woke her up at six thirty. So that was the, oh, that's cute. That was the as well. She it's is kind of opposite known, of what most pets do, right? You normally. It depends on how tired she gets, but 6 a.m. or so, I'll, I'll hear the, the barking. And my wife, God bless her, she'll say, you want me to take her out? And I'll say, no, I'll do it. And she'll oh, say, cute. thank you. How old is Sasha? <laughs> three and a half. Okay, so she's fairly young. Oh, yeah, three oh, and a half. Oh, good. Yeah, three okay. and a half. No, no, she she will um, end in, in very in very good health. So good. That's, uh, that's good. All right. So I guess this is, I don't know how much they paid for the University of Pennsylvania to come out and tell you that if you're walking your dog on a leash, you might be more inclined to fall and... Of course, you're, of course, you're out there walking. And if you're older, the, the injury might be a little worse than if you're younger. Hmm, go figure. All right. I am of an age. I remember. When were you born, Gru? You were born in 89. All right. Grand Avenue in downtown Milwaukee. Grand Avenue was seven years old when you were born. I remember when Grand Avenue first opened. I was working in the old federal building and 517 East Wisconsin Avenue. Grand Avenue, of course, this was the big project. The people that did Harbor Place in Baltimore, Maryland, um, right on the on the Baltimore Harbor, they, they came out and, and they did Grand Avenue. And Grand Avenue was going to be transformative for for Milwaukee. And I can, I mean, I remember when it first opened up, you had Boston Store that was the anchor on the west. You had Gimbel's, later Marshall Fields, that was the anchor on, on the east. You had a giant food court. You had all these different stores. I mean, I can, I remember that for lunch, you know, we would oftentimes, you know, let's walk down to the Grand Avenue because they had all these different food courts and we would walk from, you know, 517 East Wisconsin Avenue, you know, down to, um, you know, Water Street, cross over the bridge, you know, go up to Grand Avenue. And, and we were not alone. I mean, this is, it was the place. I can remember that even on weekends and stuff, it, it was big shopping. People would come from the surrounding area. People would actually, to an extent, come from the suburbs to shop at some of the stores in Grand Avenue. So that was, that was 1982 and 1983. By, I, I want to say by the, the early 90s, for whatever reason, the luster had kind of faded from Grand Avenue, and I don't exactly know why. I think it was – it didn't have a Northridge problem where I think people were concerned about crime and stuff, but it, it did have a convenience situation. I mean, if you're if you're in Wauwatosa, it's just easier to go to Mayfair than it was to drive downtown and park in the parking structure. And, and so Grand Avenue started into what has become, if not a death spiral, started uh, you know to to be if not terminally ill, certainly on on life support. And Grand Avenue has had a number of iterations, you know, since the the mid '90s. They've tried to re you know reincarnate it with different types of things. The the latest idea now in um, let's see 2015 the the current investment group bought Grand Avenue this was December of 2015 for twenty about twenty four and a half million bucks roughly and the, the idea is to remake it we're now going to call it the the Avenue and it it's going to have a little bit of a retail component it's going to have a food hall which is a little bit different than a food court food halls are the big thing now it's going to have retail it's going to have um some 
some living space that's there, and they're hoping to attract some, you know, interesting office kind of tenants as well. So they're trying to pretty much completely remake Rand Avenue from what it was when it first opened in 1982. So here's the deal. The investment group that bought it in December of 2015 paid $24.5 million. The assessed value of the buildings at the end of last year were $20.3 million. So the assessed value had gone down. Well, like I say, now they've got this plan, food hall, offices, apartments. They they say that if this happens, the value of the property by 2022, so that would be the next three years, is going to increase from $20 million to $56 million. So it's going to come close to tripling. That's That's what the city... Department of Development says. Tripling? I, I, I don't know. But here's the deal. One of the things that they need to make this happen is the, the city wants to take $9 million to give it to the developers to help pay for redevelopment. The idea would be that if you, you give this, this latest $9 million annual grants, what you do is you would use this $9 million to, um, again, help help improve the, the facade, to do some other improvements there to help make this all you know more worthwhile. Now, the city has put a lot of money into this project over the course of the last you know 30 years, and you can argue that not a lot of that has worked. This is the latest plan to try to revitalize Grand Avenue, and the idea is this $9 million would again be paid back ultimately by the increased property taxes that are going to be generated from the growth of Grand Avenue. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. For the longest time, this has been a struggle trying to figure out what to do with Grand Avenue and try the and again they call it the avenue now most of us know it as Grand Avenue it's been a struggle there's been all sorts of successful development you know in downtown Milwaukee there's no question about it but that section of Wisconsin Avenue has been I don't know it's been pretty tough it's been pretty tough to turn things around so here's what I want to discuss with you especially if you've been around here for a while Right. Is this going to work? Is this have we now come up with the idea, the magic bullet that's going to solve the problems that we've had with Grand Avenue? And like I say, I mean, the, the city is saying, hey, we put this nine million dollars in and the developers do what they promised to do. And you're going to see the value of this property almost triple in the next three or four years. Is that realistic or is it pie in the sky? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, please hold on. We discuss in a moment. More Jeff Wagner right after this. Jeff Wagner, WPMJ. If you're just tuning in, here's what we're discussing. You know, Grand Avenue, which was built in 1982, which is, of course, the, the south side of Wisconsin Avenue, west of the river. It was, I think, I think it would be fair to say that it was pretty much of an unqualified success for the first 10 years or so. And then a variety of things started occurring. But, you know, Grand Avenue has been 
arguably struggling since the mid-90s. And there's been all these different proposals over the years. Here, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do the other thing, and none of it's really turned stuff around. Now you have you know Boston Store, which the city invested a whole lot of money in, trying to get them to stay. Well, Boston Store's gone belly up. The, so you, know, you don't have that anchor store that's there. But obviously, Wisconsin Avenue is something that is important to have have developed. I mean, you don't want your main drag in the city to be something that's nothing but wig shops and things like that and nail salons. No knock to wig shops or things like that, but you, you want it to be more. So the latest idea is this thing called the Avenue. That's how that they're going to refer to it, and it's going to be a mix. There's going to be a food hall, which are very, very popular things nowadays. You've got the food hall. You're going to have some retail. You're going to have some residential, and you're going to have have some offices and apparently um, you know Graf USA which is the engineering and design firm they're going to be moving headquarters to the third floor there's you know other potential tenants that are out there I know some of the businesses that are considering locating in that area and now the city is talking about putting up nine million dollars to help again develop the facade and help with the development the value of the property 20 million dollars Assessed value last year. The plan is if this all happens, it'll be worth $55 million, and the city sees it as a good investment. So, what do I think? And what do you think? 414 799 1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will say this I think what they are talking about doing now, for the first time in a long time, has a chance of succeeding. I, I've, I just I remember and I've seen the various proposals and the various things that we're going to turn stuff around, you know, year after year and the different ideas. And all of them, for a variety of reasons, have, have been doomed, in, in large part because, I don't know, it didn't fit with the area. One of the things that you have going on now, and this is the big benefit of Pfizer Forum, is you have this renewed interest in that area of, of downtown. You have more people that are, you know, the empty nesters that are moving downtown. You have the millennials that are there as well. I think at least on the, on the design idea, I think that what they're talking about as far as repurposing Grand Avenue has, has potential that previous ideas haven't had. If you were just going to try to reconstitute this as retail, it wouldn't be going anywhere. If you were trying to say, okay, this is going to be nothing but office buildings, well, all right, there's other more attractive locations that just independently, if it's going to be nothing but office buildings, that you could locate there. But if you tie it in with residential, you tie it in with, I think, some of the redevelopment that's going on in the area, I could see this is something that would perhaps be appealing to businesses. You could say, look at everything we've got, just like Jeff, back in 1982, when you worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office, you'd be willing to walk from the old federal building, eight or nine blocks to Grand Avenue to have lunch at the food court, you can make an argument and say, hey, look, look at all the development that's going on around Fiserv. Look at that whole area that they have there. Look at everything and all that building. Well, okay, you know, maybe there's offices that locate in Grand Avenue, for example. And even if they don't want to go to the food hall, you know, within a half a mile or whatever, they can walk down. They can be in the center of that. I guess 
I, I don't want to always be this Debbie Downer when it comes to certain development ideas. And while I have been skeptical and outright critical of some of the things they tried to do with Grand Avenue, because you knew it was destined to fail. And I think those of us who knew it was destined to fail were, were proved to be right. This is an idea that that may very well succeed. Now, the other question, though, is nine million dollars is a lot of money for the city of Milwaukee to pony up. And I, I don't know that this has gotten a lot of discussion. My personal thing would be, especially from city of Milwaukee taxpayers perspective, you, you want to make sure that before you start throwing millions of dollars at this, that there really is a realistic chance that this is going to succeed. I mean, again, I know the city paid all this money to Boston Store Bonton to try to get it to, to stay, and that, that didn't really work out very well. You know, Before you pony up all this dough, I think you have to really have some assurances that it's going to work. And while I think it might be successful, the, the idea of taking these properties and all of a sudden it goes from $20 million in assessed value in four years to almost $60 million, color me a little bit skeptical about it. But I want to see this work, and this is at least the first idea that I've heard in a while that I think has some potential to work. And maybe potential is important. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. Gordon Lightfoot returns to the Paps Theater this summer, June 9th. You can win tickets by listening to my program. Tomorrow, we will be giving away another pair of tickets, playing hits like Sundown, if you could read my mind. And, of course, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Gordon Lightfoot is sure to be a summer concert that cannot be missed. Stay tuned. Like I say, tomorrow, you'll have another chance to win a pair of tickets to my show. Tomorrow's show, a little bit shorter. Uh, there's an early baseball game. It's our last spring training early out. Um, I think it's about 1 o'clock. Interesting. Uh, three weeks from today, opening day. I, for one, cannot wait. All right. For the last couple of days, we have a lar- we have had partly by intention and partly just by happenstance, because all the other things that have been going on in the world, we have had largely an, an in, a Donald Trump free zone. Haven't talked a lot about what's been going on in Washington and the battles involving President Trump and the Democrats and all those different types of things. I, I deviate that because there, there is an aspect, there's a new story that's kind of out that I, I find to be really fascinating, and it dovetails on something that we have talked about before. Now that the Democrats control the House of Representatives, there is a law. It's actually a 1924 law which allows um, the House of Representatives to demand from the Secretary Treasury that the tax records of people um, in the executive branch, including the president, be turned over to this House committee. This law has, as near as I can figure it out, it's only been used once, and that was in the Watergate era, to uh, obtain a number of years of President Nixon's tax returns. Now, most people who have run, with except since President Nixon, everybody up until President Trump, have voluntarily made their tax returns public. President Trump has not done that. You know, he said, well, they're, they're being audited. I, I can't release them. Now, there, there's no – that's that's not true. I mean, he, he might be being audited. I don't know if that's the case or not. But 
just because you're being audited doesn't mean you couldn't release your tax records if you wanted to. There's not like a gag order that the IRS has. But President Trump doesn't want to share his tax returns with the general public. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for that. If you were a conspiracy theorist, you would say, well, the reason he doesn't want to share my tax returns with the general public is it's going to show that he was up to his neck in financial dealings with the Russians, and this is going to be the smoking gun that leads to impeachment. There could be other reasons like, okay, President Trump has claimed he has all this income and he's rich. Maybe he's not paying that much in taxes. I, I, I don't know. There's reasons. Could be more benign reasons, just thinking it's it's none of your business. I don't want to share this. This is this is personal stuff. I don't want this to be disclosed. I don't know why he doesn't want to turn over his tax returns, but he, he doesn't want to turn over his tax returns. Well, in any event, House Democrats now appear poised to use this 1924 law to demand that the Treasury Department give them the last 10 years worth of tax returns that President Trump has has filed. And even though these returns are supposed to be provided like under seal and, and they're supposed to be confidential, almost everybody understands that once Congress gets this information under this law that that, that it's going to get leaked. That, that's, that's just what's going to happen. Once these tax returns are turned over by the Treasury and once they're in the hands of the, the Democrats, it's going to be made public. I mean, they're just I think everybody understands that not supposed to be made public, but they're going to be made public. So it looks like they're going to be looking for the next for the last 10 years of tax returns from President Trump. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's what I want to discuss with you. Is this legitimate? Or is this just a vindictive attempt to either a fishing expedition or just a vindictive attempt to hopefully try to embarrass the president? Is there a legitimate reason you think for the president to have to turn over his tax returns and then understanding that they are going to be made public. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Now, keep in mind that if the IRS believed that there was a criminal, something criminal that was going on with these tax returns, they, of course, have the ability to, you know, initiate a criminal investigation. As far as I know, there's no criminal investigation that's going on here. If if Robert Mueller, special counsel, believed that there was something in the tax returns that would be relevant to his ongoing investigation of Russia collusion or obstruction of justice or whatever, he I, I would have, you have to jump through more hoops. But there are ways that he could obtain the tax returns. But this is just... The Trump tax returns turned over to the Democrat House of Representatives, and you know they then become public. Is this legitimate, or does it strike you as being incredibly vindictive? 414, or I guess it could be both legitimate and vindictive. 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. This is Jeff Wagner. Stick around. Jeff Wagner is right around the corner.
Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Let's start with Bill and Racine. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Yeah. Um, Hi, Bill. Well, my question would be is, how about uh, can the president have this done to the House and the Senate? Can they check the last 10 years of their all tax returns? Uh, and then protect any of them? Or? Well, right. The answer is no to that. Um, no. The, 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 answer, the answer is no. This is this obscure law from 1924 which, uh, again, applies to oversight of the executive branch. Do you think this is just a vindictive fi- uh, uh, fishing expedition? Yeah. Yeah. I really do. That's why I think if the president could, he should say, hey, I want the IRS to check everybody. Well, I get. I mean, thanks. I see. I, here's what bothers me uh, about this. And I, I, I understand that, that President Trump just kind of rewrites all sorts of rules. All right, and and maybe this is just my perspective from having worked as a federal prosecutor and knowing knowing how difficult and appropriate so appropriately so how difficult it is to get federal tax returns if you're conducting legitimate criminal investigations and the reason is because you know tax returns are I think in many respects that they are the most personal of things if there is a legitimate criminal investigation whether it's being done by the IRS because they believe that the president committed crimes or the special counsel, Robert Mueller, or the federal prosecutors in New York, if they have legitimate investigations that they think the tax return information is relevant to, there are ways they can do it. But there's also rules that come along with that with regard to their ability to disclose that information. And, And that's because... Again, none of us, the tax returns, I think, are are between us and and the government. And they're really nobody else's business unless you commit a crime. There's no question in my mind that the principal purpose for trying to obtain these tax returns is to try to embarrass President Trump. And and I I mean, I don't know what's in there, but my guess is there's going to be something that people look at and say, oh, see, this is what his income was, and it wasn't as much as he said it was, or it was more than we thought it was, and he should have paid more in taxes. If there is a criminal purpose behind it, let the legitimate authorities get the records and then let them do it. This particular situation, I think, is purely done to embarrass the president. And I, I think I would feel this way if it was any president. 414-799-1620, Tyler and Oconomowoc. Hi, Tyler. How's it going, Jeff? Real well, thank you. What do you think? I think the Democrats are trying to figure out any way to skin a cat. They, uh, they hate Trump. They're completely upset still over the past couple of years that Hillary did not win, and they're going to do anything and everything they can to spread their hatred of Trump to make sure that another Republican doesn't get nothing. Right, or that, or that he doesn't get reelected. You know? Exactly. Why, does, why doesn't the Congress, Senate, and House you know, give up their tax returns to find out where their, all their money is coming from when they're only getting paid, what, 150000 a year? And yeah, a lot well, of them have thirty, forty million dollars in the bank. How does how does the math of that add up? Well, well, right. I mean, thanks. I mean, I guess there, there's all sorts of things that that are that are there. And look, and I don't know what the guy's tax returns look like, and I don't know what they show. And I guess I just keep coming back to the fact that I don't trust. I don't trust Congress to handle this appropriately. You know as soon as they get these documents, they're going to be leaked. You know, at least in my opinion, that this isn't a serious. 
It's not a serious effort to try to find out if there's been wrongdoing. There's investigations out the gazoo that are being conducted by the IRS and the attorney, U.S. Attorney's Office in New York and the special counsel and all. If they want to get the tax return records, again, there's ways that you can do that. You need to ultimately get approval from the Justice Department, and as I recall, I think a court order. But you can go and you can make those showings and get Get the information if you need to do it, as opposed to simply, all right, well, we want it because we're curious to see what's in this in the past. Let's talk to Frank in Milwaukee. Frank, you're on WTMJ. Okay. Hi, Frank. Yeah, hi. Uh, As I was explaining, uh, I I asked the question, were all the past presidents, you know, are they required to give that information? And the gentleman said, well, yes. I said, well, okay. So why, why is it, you know, why does it seem like there's something behind wanting that information? Okay, well, let me, let me back, well, let me back up, Frank. The uh-huh. president, Richard Nixon, was required. They used, the only time I can, I, as far as I know, the only time that this law has been used was back during the Watergate era in 1974 to obtain okay. President Nixon's information. All the presidents since Nixon have voluntarily disclosed their tax return information. So this law hasn't been invoked or anything. They've just done it. Trump doesn't do it. Trump said, no, it's nobody's business. I'm I'm not doing it. Okay. Okay. So well, that, oh, all right. Well, no, no, <laughs> so, well, no but I mean, I, I guess I, it, it's so it, it's not like this law has routinely been used. Like I say, most presidents do it. This was an issue during if you remember back, this was an issue during the 2016 race. This was one of the things that was one of the, the talking points, the anti-Trump talking points, that there must be something in these tax returns. My position has been pretty consistent on this, which is do, do I think. It's a good thing for candidates to do that, yeah. Do I think that they should have to do it? Well, no, I, I guess I, I don't, simply because if there's something criminal in there, well, let them get investigated, let them get prosecuted. And at least as far as I think anybody knows, there's no suggestion that authorities believe there's anything criminal in connection with this. But it's a giant fishing, um, it's, it's, I mean, it's a giant fishing expedition and i think it is designed to embarrass president trump and all right maybe you think that that's worthwhile rick in new berlin hi rick you're on wtmj how you doing jeff good listen i think it's time for uh president trump to just say here it is put all the cars on the table go for it if he has nothing to hide well i was going to say why do you think he doesn't just disclose his tax returns well, I personally believe he's got something to hide. Okay, no, I... <laughs> look, look at look at the Southern District of New York. They got all these things going on. Something must be going on there. Well, I guess then my question would be, if if that's the case, why why doesn't the Southern District of New York just jump through the hoops? They get it and use it for their in- investigation. Why why do you need okay the House of Representatives to do this when they're not conducting the criminal investigation? Well, you would think they'd have it already. I mean, you would know that more than I. I don't know how the rules work. Mm-hmm. You would think that, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I mean, think I don't know if they do. Thanks for calling. I mean, I don't know if they do or don't. I, I do know that if if the Southern District, if attorneys, if the U.S. Attorney's Office, for example, had obtained that information because they want to see if there, there's anything in there that's relevant to to the commission of a, of a crime. 
I, I do know that there's all sorts of also strict strict rules with regard to how you use that information and, and that is you know and then if, if so if you just leak it for example you know if you obtain information pursuant to a grand jury subpoena or a court order or whatever and you then go out and you leak it well you have committed a crime and, and you're liable for that in contrast, you know, once this information gets to Congress, you know somebody's going to be running to the New York Times and the Washington Post and, you know, whatever Internet group. You know, what's going to happen is as soon as some Democratic staffer gets this, the photocopy machine is going to be running over time. And then immediately there's going to be all sorts of copies of this out on the Internet and, and there's not going to be any controls on it. Look, I don't I, I guess I, I just to me, this is kind of putting Take, let's take Trump out of this for a minute. Let, let's take how you feel about President Trump out of this for a moment. I guess I kind of come back and say, all right, the law doesn't require people who run for president or Senate or Congress, as far as I know, to to disclose their tax returns. You know, if you choose not to do it, well, people can hold that against you. They can figure you've got something to hide and they can choose not to vote for you. If you want to change the law that says, all right, it's got to be mandatory, then you change the law. I just object to this kind of backdoor way of trying to, you know, get this type of of information. And like I say, I'm not I'm really not excusing Trump. I don't know what's in there, what's not in there. I, I just I try to think about this personally and, and I don't know I, I don't think I have anything to hide but I I don't want my tax returns out there my guess is if you think about it honestly take President Trump out of it you know do you think do you want your tax returns there I one of the things I, in the state of Wisconsin and people don't know this a lot in the state of Wisconsin the amount of income tax you paid the state is a public record. Your tax returns aren't, but people can find out, you know, how much you owed in tax. That was one of the, that's one of the, the games that they play with candidates. The other side always make, makes these requests for that public information and they, they try to figure out, okay, how, how much did somebody pay? And then the thing is always, well, if they paid less than what they should have paid, all that type of stuff. And I, I just, to me, it's a private sort of thing. It, the amount of money you make is private. The amount of money you pay in taxes is private or should be, at least in my opinion, unless you decide you want to make it public, number one, or number two, you're doing something fishy with it, in which case, let the IRS investigate you. Let the State Department of Revenue investigate you. Let other authorities investigate you if they think that your tax returns have information relative to crimes. But, I mean, do you really want some of the hacks in Congress on either side of the aisle being able to get unfettered access to people's tax returns and then make it public. That's my point. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure has on his show this afternoon. Please stick around.